Well, Father, I'm so thankful um, just to be engaged in ministries in the city of Cheyenne. Oh, Lord, I'm thankful for the God's Mighty Men Conference, and we pray for that conference, Lord, that I truly believe at every one of those conferences it's an opportunity for somebody to hear the gospel, that uh, somebody can invite a friend and uh, they'll think of it as just a day to hang out. They won't uh, know necessarily what they're getting into, but when they get there, they're going to hear uh, of your Son, Jesus Christ, and it's going to be a moment of salvation for them. Uh, for other people, Lord, I know that it's going to edify and build them up. It's going to strengthen them. Uh, Lord, I would pray uh, for uh, husbands, and for fathers, uh, for single men, uh, Lord, that they would be encouraged by this event. Uh, Lord, that it would be a success, that all the uh, little side details that always have to be handled will be handled well. Uh, most of all, that you'll be glorified in all that is said and done there. Uh, Lord, we also thank you for biblical concepts and counseling. Uh, Lord, what a pleasure it is to uh, be able to uh, equip people for marriage, equip people to stand strong in their relationships. Lord, every single person I've ever met that's been married uh, has had times of struggle, and it's nice to have somebody uh, who can uh, take the time to listen and care for them and help guide them through their difficulties and guide them through their struggles. Lord, my prayer would be uh, that the people of uh, the church in Cheyenne would set the example that they would not um, let go of the gift of marriage, that they would find themselves constantly seeking uh, to be obedient to you in their marriages, but also to be able to live out their faith. I've seen marriages sanctify people, marriages take people through the process of discipleship as they try to live out their faith in their home. Oh Lord, would you bless Charlie and his ministry that you would give him wisdom and knowledge to be able to counsel people in your word. Oh Father, we thank you for your word as well. We're excited to be able to be in your word this morning. Uh, we're approaching for uh, you, which I'm sure is a difficult subject, Lord, as we look at the crucifixion of your son, Jesus Christ. Uh, for most of us, that is the joy of our salvation. Oh, Lord, it is easy for us to, to not hear this fresh. Uh, it's easy for us to just look at a passage we've seen before and hear a story we've heard before and kind of miss the power of it. Lord, would you help us to regain the power that comes from your Son, Jesus Christ, from recognizing the work that he did for us on the cross? And we would pray that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we are in John chapter 19. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Someone will bring one to you so you can follow along with us. Um, funny story, has nothing to do with the sermon, but it just came to my mind, so I feel like I have to share it. Um, just last week, I was listening to a famous pastor talk about sermons, and he said, if I ever hear you start a sermon by saying, open your Bible to John 19, and then just go right into it without some cool illustration to start your point, I will come to your church and slap you. Um, I do it every week because, I mean, that's literally where we are. It's John 19. Uh, I got nothing else except for the word. Uh, but uh, we're going to take this passage just a little bit different this week. Uh, in this sense, normally I break these things down into bite-sized chunks so that we can kind of work through them. And uh, um, the slides up there, they are not working on this. Okay. Uh, anyway, I take these in, in bite-sized chunks and we kind of work our way through it. This time I want to do it just a little bit different. Uh, I'm actually going to just divide this whole chapter into two pieces. Uh, first, leading up to Jesus' death and then leading up to Jesus' burial. Uh, what I would like to do as I read through it, 
I would like to ask you guys to try to listen to it as if it's the first time you've heard it or if it's the first time you've heard it in a while anyway. Uh, and, and the idea there is, again, I just want it to be kind of fresh in your mind. And so I know every Sunday when I read the scriptures, you guys are listening. But today I want you to, to really listen. I want you to just hear the words. Uh, we have four accounts in the Gospels of the death of Jesus, each one bringing different details and different ideas. Uh, but this morning, I want you to hear John's account. Uh, it says this in John chapter 19, verse 1. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up and to say to him, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him slaps in the face. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to him, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify! Crucify! And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die because he made himself out to be the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. And he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, Do you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you? I have authority to crucify you. Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. But the Jews cried out saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king, <clears throat> everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. So they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So they then handed him over to them to be crucified. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, 
do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour the disciple took her into his own household. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the Scripture, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The Gospel of John has what I would say is probably the most matter-of-fact telling of the crucifixion of Jesus. He doesn't go into great detail. He just kind of mentions that he was crucified. Uh, What is more important around the Gospel of John is uh, the concept of uh, Pilate's innocence, really, in this. Uh, It seems like John goes out of his way to show that Pilate was consistently trying to get out of this. He did that all of chapter 18. He's doing it again here in 19 on multiple occasions, saying, you know, Jesus isn't guilty. Jesus isn't guilty. Uh, The other thing that he focuses in on, though, is this fulfillment of Scripture. Now, remember, the purpose of the Gospel of John was so that you will believe. That's why John wrote this book. He wrote it so that you will believe. So when he goes into this, he he discusses just briefly the fact that Jesus was scourged, but he doesn't tell us what that means. He just kind of assumes we either know or or he makes the decision to not explain it. Uh, The best way I can explain it is um, that they uh, had a pretty brutal whip system with metal shards on the ends of the whip. And the purpose of it was to remove the flesh from your back. And they would whip you until that flesh came off of your back. That was the whole intention of it. Uh, They would try to not whip you to the point of death, although it says historically that some people would die just from the scourging. At this point, they bring Jesus back out before the Jews. And Pilate, I think, is hoping to himself that when they see how badly he's beaten Jesus, they won't want to put him to death. But the Jews finally tip their hand. They finally explain in verse 7 what the real reason is that they're angry about Jesus. They haven't told Pilate up to this point. All they've said is, we wouldn't bring him to you if he wasn't an evildoer. Uh, But at this point, they finally tell us what it was that they're angry about. Uh, And it's simply that he made himself out to be the Son of God, which from their perspective is blasphemy, unless it's actually true which just happens to be the case with Jesus. And he demonstrated that time and time again. He demonstrated that he was from God. Pilate still doesn't want anything to do this. uh, And this makes it a little bit scarier now hearing that he might be the son of God. 
Uh, this really freaks him out. He brings Jesus back inside and he begins to question him again. And Jesus doesn't answer him this time. And Pilate's like, don't you understand? I have the authority to put you to death. And Jesus says, you have no authority except that which was given to you. He reminds Pilate, but it's also a reminder to himself that God had allowed this to happen, that this was ultimately God's plan, this was ultimately God's purpose. So then he brings them out again, he brings Jesus out again before the Jews and asks if they should release him. And in verse 12 they say, everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Now for Pilate, we have the pressure of the political threat. It's very interesting at the end of this in verse 15, before they actually take him to crucify him, that the Jews, as they're crying out, crucify him, Pilate says, shall I crucify your king? And they say something very telling. They say, we have no king except Caesar. Now, in that political environment, it probably made sense, but it harkens back to the history of the Jews. If you remember uh, Samuel, that Samuel was the high priest. He was serving as the uh, intermediator or the mediator between God and man. And the people wanted a king like all the other nations. And Samuel's trying to talk them out of it. And finally, he goes to God and says, why have they rejected me? And God says, Samuel, they didn't reject you God says they've rejected me as their king. And that rejection of God as king kind of continues on in this path. And this is really kind of what finally leads up to the crucifixion of Jesus. It says it very matter-of-factly in verse 18. There they crucified him with two other men, one on either side. Uh, it points out that they wrote this plaque and put it above his head where Pilate had written up there in three different languages in three different ways. Uh, Jesus, the Nazarene, king of the Jews. Of course, the Jews are angry about this uh, because they don't see him as king, so they want him to change it. And he's like, I've already done the work. I'm not remaking my sign. But I think he's also kind of picking at them a little bit. I think he's angry at this whole circumstance. He's upset that he's been put in this circumstance. Uh, he's doing what he knows is actually wrong morally but he also struggles with the idea of truth as we saw in chapter 18 he doesn't even understand what is truth and so he goes ahead and does the wrong thing likely in this case for self-preservation reasons to protect himself from an uprising of the jews and also to protect himself from an accusation that would say he was allowing a rebellion so that the romans would kill him so he's kind of stuck uh, between uh, the jews and the romans here and so pilate does uh, what it seems right in that situation. Obviously, we know better than that. Um, but they crucify Jesus. And then there's kind of this discussion that kind of continues on all throughout it as they struggle with this. You'll see the author includes on several occasions uh, just different references to other places in the Scripture. Uh, for instance, in verse 24, uh, he's going to quote uh, from the psalmist. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Again, this is Psalm chapter 22. Uh, if you ever get the chance to just sit there and read through Psalm 22, it, it actually reads like it's one of the four Gospels. 
You can actually see Jesus in that passage, even though it was written so long before the life of Jesus Christ. But it was all a prophetic word pointing people to Jesus again so that they would believe. You see Jesus uh, handing his mother off. Just kind of a sad scene, if you can imagine. His back, the flesh has been ripped off. He's now on a cross. I can't, and, and for, you know, just certain things just kind of give me the eebie-jeebies. And so just thinking about the flesh off of his back now up against that wooden cross, it just, for me, just stings just thinking about it. Uh, and then he spies his mom and some of the other ladies who were there, uh, all the other Marys that are there, watching him be crucified. And he spies the disciple whom he loved unnamed in this passage really six times he's mentioned only in the gospel of john which have led some people to believe that this is actually john who is the disciple that jesus loved but for whatever reason uh, it's not expressly said in here uh, i think in some part um because he loved all the disciples but that's the reality he, he just loved all of the disciples in fact he loves all of his current disciples but he hands his mom basically over to this disciple and he says Behold, pointing to the beloved disciple, behold your son. And he says to the beloved disciple, behold your mother. And all of this plays out. It's a scene we've seen before. They finally give him some sour wine. Uh, and then in verse 30, he utters these profound words, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So all of this is, is, is routine for us because we've heard it before but it hopefully is still challenging for us because we understand what it means. But I wanted to look at it just a little bit different this week. I wanted to look at it just a little bit different than we have in the past. Uh, I actually wanted to put it into a more personal term for you. I want to ask the question, or I want you to ask the question, what did the death of Jesus accomplish for me? Now, you could go into a very long and detailed study of the Scripture uh, and come up with a long list of things that the death of Jesus actually accomplished. One list I saw, I think, had 27 things that the death of Jesus accomplished. Well, we don't have time to go through 27 things, but what I did is picked out the ones that seemed to personalize more the death of Jesus Christ for us as believers, but for also for all who will believe in the future. And that's what I really want to look at today. I want to look at uh, a handful of concepts of what the death of Jesus accomplished. I want to kind of go deeper into a little bit of a theological talk, but I want that theology to be personalized for you. Sometimes we hear about theology, we hear some of these big words in Scripture, and we just kind of like, oh, that's just a big theological term, but it really doesn't really mean anything to us. Uh, if you get the chance, you should pressure Pastor Bob to reteach his class, Big Salvation Words. Uh, it's a great class because it does a good job of taking these kind of big salvation words that we've heard before, like propitiation and vicarious atonement. And we just like, ooh, those are big words. Substitutionary death and all of these different things that you see in the scripture there about Jesus. Uh, if you could ask him to reteach that sometime, uh, I think he would maybe enjoy that. Um, I'm just going to look at a, a couple of those, though. Uh, the first thing I want to look at is just the most obvious thing that was accomplished in the death of Jesus Christ. Uh, we go over it almost every year uh, as we hit Easter time, uh, but it's just this concept in 1 Corinthians uh, 15. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died 
for our sins. When Jesus is dying on the cross, one of the things that we need to personalize is that his death was to pay the price for our personal sins. Yes, there's a corporate nature to how it was effective for all sins, for whosoever will believe in him. But for us, we need to internalize the idea that Jesus died for our sins. Or as we should say it, or as I should say it, Jesus died for my sins personally. Now, I don't want to sit up here and make a long list of all the sinful things I've ever done in my life, uh, although that might be entertaining for some of you. But I think we need to actually, from time to time, make the connection. I think it's too easy for us to just say something like, Jesus died for the sins of the world, or even just Jesus died for my sins, but to not actually think through, uh, to, to remember the things that we did that were in opposition to God's will that he actually died for that we would recognize that we had a hand in his death. There should be coming to your mind right now just a number of things memorialized for you in your memory, in your life, that you recognize that you did that were offensive to God. These things that were sinful, that were trespasses against his word. Whatever those things are, just listing those things and remembering that in the death of Jesus Christ, those sins were placed on him. He became sin. He who knew no sin became sin. And it was your personal sins that were a part of that. Christ died for my sins. He died for your sins and whatever that list is that you're coming up with in your mind. I don't expect you to remember every sinful thing you did. In fact, I've spent a number of years trying to forget many of the sinful things that I did. But it really shouldn't be hard for just every once in a while those to be recalled that we can actually make this connection that it was actual sin. It wasn't the concept of sin. Jesus didn't die for the concept of sin. He died for your sins instead of you. The book of Romans tells us that the wage of sin is death. There's a personalized connection to the death of Jesus on the cross. When we look at the cross of Calvary, it's not just an emblem, it's not just an icon. It's intended to be a reminder for us of the price that was paid for us. Uh, That brings us to another thing, by the way, when I talk about this idea of the price that was paid for us. Uh, you, can, you can kind of see this in three different words. I'm going to use the primary, as, as one of the words here is ransom, but it could also be a word redeem or redemption. One of the other things we see in Scripture, Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. That's 1 Timothy chapter 2. And each one of these I've listed some other verses under. Uh, you can look those up. Uh, but you see in, in Ephesians and Titus and Hebrews and 1 Peter that you also will see a word of redeem or redemption. Uh, the word ransom for me at this particular point just really grabbed my attention. Maybe it's because I've watched uh, too much Netflix, but I can visualize a kidnapping scenario, right? 
And somebody has to pay that ransom. Somebody has to pay the ransom to buy the person who's held in bondage out of that bondage. For us, we were in bondage to the sins. Jesus' death paid the ransom to free us because we were in captivity, we were in bondage, we were kidnapped by sin. We were held captive. And Jesus substituted His life for ours. He paid the ransom for us. And when I say us, I want you to hear that as you. Because I'm hearing it as me. I want it to be personalized for us. It's not just enough for us to read the story and remember. We need to be reminded of what Jesus did for us. He gave Himself as a ransom for all. And I'm included in that all. So Christ died for our sins, surrendering Himself to redeem us, to ransom us out of the captivity or the slavery or the bondage that we were in, the sin that was separating us from God. That's what this death of Jesus is accomplishing here. In doing so, something powerful happens. When you see somebody who's been kidnapped and the ransom is paid, that person then gets to be restored, returned, or reconciled to their family. They get to be brought back to their relationship that they had with their family. And that's the next thing that we can personalize in this. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. This death on the cross that we remember, that we've heard before, this death on the cross reconciled us to God. Apart from our faith, before we were involved in any kind of relationship with Jesus Christ, whether we recognized it or not, we were at war with God. We had a broken relationship with God. We had decided to live our life our way instead of submitted or surrendered to the God who created us, instead of submitting ourselves to our Master, to the One who gave us everything, we had rejected that relationship. Some of you understand that in your personal relationships. Some of you, whether it's your parents or your children or your spouses, some of you have been in those situations where you've had broken relationships. And you can understand the pain of that. And in most of those broken relationships, each person thinks they're the innocent party. So in that sense, you can even relate to God who literally is the innocent party here. The hurt and the pain that that brings on. But in that reconciliation then, the joy of that restored relationship, seeing that which was broken before brought back together, those families that were torn apart, those friendships that were destroyed, being reunited and restored, that reconciliation it came because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross that you, that I, have been reconciled in my relationship with God. So there's no longer anything in between us, which for me is, is important because in that, there's no shame. 
If there's nothing in between us, if there's no longer anything there because Jesus took away all of our sins, I don't have to approach God in shame. I approach him now in a restored, reconciled relationship. All of those things taken away at the cross. He died for our sins, paying the ransom to reconcile us to God the Father. It's a powerful thing that He's done for us. I think probably the most powerful thing that's accomplished through that for me personally, though, uh, is this. Uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 8. God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The most powerful thing accomplished at the cross for me personally is the demonstration of God's love for us. It is the proof of His love for us. It's the evidence of His love for us. There are people, Christians and non-Christians, who still struggle with this idea, does God love me? The answer to that is the cross. Yes, Yes, He demonstrated His love for you. That while you were yet sinners, and that's the part that's baffling to us, while we were yet sinners, or as it said in the previous passage, while there was still this enemy between, we were still an enemy with one another. In the midst of that, that's when Christ died for us. Now think about it. Of course, historically, we know that Jesus died all those years ago, knowing full well then all of the sinful things that we were going to do before we did them, he knew every one of them. There's no sin that escaped his attention. There's nothing you ever did that God said, wow, I did not see that coming. I think I should take back the cross for this guy. There's nothing in your life like that. Nothing knowing everything that you ever did or ever will do to sin against Him, He still demonstrated His love for you at the cross. The cross should be a constant reminder for us. God loves us. God loves you. Whoever you are, wherever you've been, whatever you've done, God loves you, and He demonstrated that at the cross. There's another powerful passage, by the way, in the book of Romans uh, that you might want to look at. I'm going to have you turn there because it is that powerful. I just think it's better if you can read through it. But Romans chapter 8, verse 31 through 39, lists out 17 things that will never separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. It's a pretty all-inclusive list. I just, just kind of read through this with me, if you will, or listen through it however you're most comfortable, however you think you'll, you'll grasp it better. But Romans chapter 8, verse 30, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, 
how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who's the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Here's the first eight things. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Will any of those things separate us from the love of Christ? None of them will. The question's rhetorical. Just as is written, for your sake, we're being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. None of those things separate us from the love of Christ. Good times, bad times, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, tribulation, distress, all of the things on that list. None of those things that happen in your life separate you from the love of Christ. We know that because even though all those things happen to you, he did that. He died on the cross for you. And none of those things can take away what he did on the cross. There's nothing that happens that separates us. In all of these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Verse 38. I am convinced that neither, and here's the next list, death or life or angels or principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Each and every one of us is so fully loved by God through Christ Jesus that none of these things can separate us. Death does not separate us from God. Angelic beings, demonic principalities, things in your present, things in your future, doesn't matter what powerful things exist in this world. I happen to be afraid of heights. Doesn't separate me from the love of God. I'm really afraid of falling from high places. That's probably a little bit more accurate, but we're depths and there's nothing. You can't go high enough to get away from the love of God. You can't go down low enough to get away from the love of God. There's nothing that was ever created that will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And that's a powerful understanding. What Jesus accomplished at the cross, paying the price for our sins, ransoming us out of those sins, the bondage of that sin and that slavery to reconcile us to God the Father, all of it is an evidence, it's a proof that he loves you. I just need you to hear that as believers today. God loves you. And if you're an unbeliever today, if you've not previously accepted Christ as Lord, I need you to hear this as well. God loves you. And there is a forever reminder in the cross of just how much he did, the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. He loves you no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done. He loves you. 
And it's a love that will never let go. He's just asking you to trust in him. We go back to John chapter 19 now. We're going to finish the chapter up. It's going to be setting things up for the next chapter here in chapter 20 next week. But it says this in verse 31. Then the Jews came because it was the day of preparation so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath. For that Sabbath was a high day. Uh, They asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified. His testimony is true. And he knows that he's telling the truth. And here is that theme again for the Gospel of John, so that you may believe. For these things came to pass to fulfill the Scripture. Not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another Scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, uh, about a hundred pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. And so the body of Jesus laid in the tomb. They pierced his side. Um, Verse 35, again, is important for us. One of the reasons we believe in the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus is the eyewitness accounts. And honestly, they're they're very powerful eyewitness accounts because there's nothing in it for the eyewitnesses except for death and martyrdom. And that's what they all suffered. But this eyewitness who writes the Gospel of John just wants to make it clear, he who has seen has testified, his testimony is true, he knows that he's telling the truth. This is all being reported to us so that we would believe. Uh, It's interesting, two people are mentioned at the end of this who actually come and take the body of Jesus. The first is a guy by the name of Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, Not much is told about him in Scripture. Uh, We hear in this case that he was a disciple of Jesus, but he was a secret one because he feared the Jews. Uh, This is uh, particularly uh, made obvious in the Gospel of Luke where they point out uh, he's not just any run-of-the-mill Jew who's afraid of the Jews. He actually happens to sit on the council that made the decision to send Jesus to be crucified by Pilate. So he's a leader amongst the Jews. And he was against that decision, they tell us, in the Gospel of Luke. And because he was a disciple of Jesus, because he was against this, he actually is going to lay Jesus in his own personal tomb. That's just a rental at this point. Jesus won't be there long. The second guy is a guy by the name of Nicodemus. We met him in John chapter 3. I don't know if you remember John chapter 3, but Nicodemus was a Pharisee. And he just comes to Jesus. He says, look, there is no doubt that from you're from God because of these amazing things that you've done. 
And Jesus says, well, unless you're born again, you can't be saved. And Nicodemus says, how? How am I born again? And then that's where Jesus goes into his instructions of how to be born again. And it brings us to John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that whosoever believeth in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. This is how you receive the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's that you have to believe. For the Christians, this is a reinforcement of that belief. For those of us that have been believers for years, I hopefully it's a for years, I hopefully it's a reminder for us of what we already believe. It's one of those anchors that will hold us in the faith. But for those who have never made a profession of faith, those who have struggled with belief before, I'm telling you, it is worth believing. I'm not an evangelist in the sense that I'm going to drag you around and kind of guilt you into these things. But it really is that simple. Whosoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. That's the promise that Jesus made, the evidence of all the fulfilled Scripture, the evidence of all the amazing things that He did and the greatest evidence that we'll look at next week, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The question is, do you believe? And next Sunday we'll look at chapter 20 and we'll see that resurrection. Uh, but we're going to have a closing song for worship as we always do. Um, but I'm just going to ask you, just very plainly, if you've never made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, let today be that day. We'll have some of the elders and pastors up at the front. All you have to do is come talk to them during the closing song, after the closing song, if you don't want it to be too awkward. We'll just tell them, I believe and I want to receive the forgiveness of sins, the ransoming away from the captivity that sin holds me in. I want to be reconciled to God. I want to receive the love of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your Son, Jesus Christ, and for your Word. And Lord, personally, just the reminder of what the cross means. Lord, I never know if a sermon is for anybody other than me. I just know this week is that the passage was so clear and so easy because I've heard it so many times that I had to be reminded of the power of the cross. Lord, I thank you for that reminder for me personally. Lord, I do pray for each person here that they will be reminded of and reconnected to the cross of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, for those who don't believe that your spirit would come alongside them today, convict them of their sin, but then guide them to your Son. That in a miraculous work, your spirit would give them the ability to believe today. Now, Lord, I ask this in Jesus' name.
Amen. Let's stand and worship.